Section 16 of History of Egypt, Volume 2, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 2. The Memphite Empire, Part 4. Of Kephron's sons, Menkari, Mykerinos, who was his successor, could scarcely dream of excelling his father and grandfather. His pyramid, the supreme Heru, barely attained an elevation of two hundred and sixteen feet, and was exceeded in height by those which were built at a later date. Up to one-fourth of its height it was faced with cyanite, and the remainder up to the summit with limestone. For lack of time, doubtless, the dressing of the granite was not completed, but the limestone received all the polish it was capable of taking. The enclosing wall was extended to the north so as to meet, and become one with, that of the second pyramid. The temple was connected with the plain by a long and almost straight causeway, which ran for the greater part of its course, upon an embankment raised above the neighboring ground. This temple was in fair condition in the early years of the eighteenth century, and so much of it has escaped the ravages of the Mamluks, bears witness to the scrupulous care and refined art employed in its construction. Coming from the plain, we first meet with an immense halting-place measuring one hundred feet by forty-six feet, and afterwards enter a large court with an egress on each side. Beyond this we can distinguish the ground-plan of only five chambers, the central one, which is in continuation with the hall, terminating at a distance of some forty-two feet from the pyramid, exactly opposite the middle point of the eastern face. The whole mass of the building covers a rectangular area one hundred and eighty-four feet long by a little over one hundred and seventy-seven feet broad. Its walls, like those of the Temple of the Sphinx, contain a core of limestone seven feet ten inches thick, of which the blocks have been so ingeniously put together as to suggest the idea that the whole is cut out of the rock. This core was covered with a casing of granite and alabaster, of which there remains preserved no trace of hieroglyphs or of wall scenes. The founder had caused his name to be inscribed on the statues, which received on his behalf the offerings, and also on the northern face of the pyramid, where it was still shown to the curious towards the first century of our era. The arrangement of the interior of the pyramid is somewhat complicated, and bears witness to changes brought unexpectedly about in the course of construction. The original central mass probably did not exceed 180 feet in breadth at the base, with a vertical height of 154 feet. It contained a sloping passage cut into the hill itself, and an oblong, low-roofed cell devoid of ornament. The main bulk of the work had been already completed, and the casing not yet begun, when it was decided to alter the proportions of the whole. Mykerinos was not, it appears, the eldest son and appointed heir of Kephron. While still a mere prince, he was preparing for himself a pyramid, similar to those which lie near the horizon, when the deaths of his father and brother called him to the throne. What was sufficient for him as a child was no longer suitable for him as a pharaoh. The mass of the structure was increased to its present dimensions, and a new inclined passage was effected in it, at the end of which a hall panelled with granite gave access to a kind of antechamber. The latter communicated by a horizontal corridor with the first vault, which was deepened for the occasion. The old entrance, now no longer of use, was roughly filled up. Mykerinos did not find his last resting-place in this upper level of the interior of the pyramid. A narrow passage, hidden behind the slabbing of the second chamber, descended into a secret crypt, lined with granite and covered with a barrel-vaulted roof. The sarcophagus was a single block of blue-black basalt, polished and carved into the form of a house, 
with a façade having three doors and three openings in the form of windows, the whole framed in a rounded moulding and surmounted by a projecting cornice, such as we are accustomed to see on the temples. The mummy case of cedar wood had a man's head, and was shaped to the form of the human body. It was neither painted nor gilt, but an inscription in two columns, cut on its front, contained the name of the pharaoh, and a prayer on his behalf. Osiris, king of the two Egypts, Menkari, living eternally, given birth to by heaven, conceived by Nuit, flesh of Sibii, thy mother Nuit has spread herself out over thee in her name of mystery of the heavens, and she has granted that thou shouldst be a god, and that thou shouldst repulse thine enemies, O king of the two Egypts, Menkari, living eternally. The Arabs opened the mummy to see if it contained any precious jewels, but found within it only some leaves of gold, probably a mask or a pectoral covered with hieroglyphs. When Weiss reopened the vault in 1837, the bones lay scattered about in confusion on the dusty floor, mingled with bundles of dirty rags and wrappings of yellowish woolen cloth. The worship of the three great pyramid-building kings continued in Memphis down to the time of the Greeks and Romans. Their statues, in granite, limestone, and alabaster, were preserved also in the buildings annexed to the temple of Ptah, where visitors could contemplate these pharaohs as they were when alive. Those of Kephren show us the king at different ages, when young, mature, or already in his decadence. They are in most cases cut out of a brescia of green diorite, with long irregular yellowish veins, and of such hardness that it is difficult to determine the tool with which they were worked. The pharaoh sits squarely on his royal throne, his hands on his lap, his body firm and upright, and his head thrown back with a look of self-satisfaction. A sparrow-hawk perched on the back of his seat covers his head with its wings, an image of the god Horus protecting his son. The modeling of the torso and legs of the largest of these statues, the dignity of its pose, and the animation of its expression, make of it a unique work of art, which may be compared with the most perfect products of antiquity. Even if the cartouches which tell us the name of the king had been hammered away, and the insignia of his rank destroyed, we should still be able to determine the pharaoh by his bearing. His whole appearance indicates a man accustomed, from his infancy, to feel himself invested with limitless authority. Mycerino stands out less impassive and haughty. He does not appear so far removed from humanity as his predecessor, and the expression of his countenance agrees, somewhat singularly, with the account of his piety and good nature preserved by the legends. The Egyptians of the Theban dynasties, when comparing the two great pyramids with the third, imagined that the disproportion in their size corresponded with the difference of character between their royal occupants. Accustomed as they were from infancy to gigantic structures, they did not experience before the horizon and the great the feeling of wonder and awe which impresses the beholder of to-day. They were not the less apt on this account to estimate the amount of labor and effort required to complete them from top to bottom. This labor seemed to them to surpass the most excessive corvée which a just ruler had a right to impose upon his subjects, and the reputation of Cheops and Kephren suffered much in consequence. They were accused of sacrilege, of cruelty, and profligacy. It was urged against them that they had arrested the whole life of their people for more than a century for the erection of their tombs. Cheops began by closing the temples and by prohibiting the offering of sacrifices. He then compelled all Egyptians to work for him. To some he assigned the task of dragging the blocks from the quarries of the Arabian chain to the Nile. Once shipped, 
the duty was incumbent on others of transporting them as far as the Libyan chain. A hundred thousand men worked at a time, and were relieved every three months. The period of the people's suffering was divided as follows. Ten years in making the causeway along which the blocks were dragged, a work, in my opinion, very little less onerous than that of erecting the pyramid, for its length was five stadia, its breadth ten orgio, its greatest height eight, and it was made of cut stone and covered with figures. Ten years, therefore, were consumed in erecting this causeway in the subterranean chambers hollowed out in the hill. As for the pyramid itself, twenty years were employed in the making of it. There are recorded on it, in Egyptian characters, the value of the sums paid in turnips, onions, and garlic, for the laborers attached to the works. If I remember aright, the interpreter who deciphered the inscription told me that the total amounted to sixteen hundred talents of silver. If this were the case, how much must have been expended for iron to make tools, and for provisions and clothing for the workmen? The whole resources of the royal treasure were not sufficient for such necessaries. A tradition represents Cheops as at the end of his means, and as selling his daughter to any one that offered, in order to procure money. Another legend, less disrespectful to the royal dignity and to paternal authority, assures us that he repented in his old age, and that he wrote a sacred book much esteemed by the devout. Kephron had imitated, and thus shared with him, the hatred of posterity. The Egyptians avoided naming these wretches. Their work was attributed to a shepherd called Philetus, who in ancient times pastured his flocks in the mountain, and even those who did not refuse to them the glory of having built the most enormous sepulchres in the world, related that they had not the satisfaction of reposing in them after their death. The people, exasperated at the tyranny to which they had been subject, swore that they would tear the bodies of these pharaohs from their tombs, and scatter their fragments to the winds. They had to be buried in crypts so securely placed that no one has succeeded in finding them. Like the two older pyramids, the Supreme had its anecdotal history, in which the Egyptians gave free rein to their imagination. We know that its plan had been rearranged in the course of building, that it contained two sepulchre chambers, two sarcophagi, and two mummies. These modifications, it was said, belonged to two distinct reigns, for Mykerinos had left his tomb unfinished, and a woman had finished it at a later date. According to some, Nitocris, the last queen of the sixth dynasty. According to others, Rhodopis, the Ionian who was the mistress of Sometticus I, or of Anaesis. The beauty and richness of the granite casing dazzled all eyes, and induced many visitors to prefer the least of the pyramids to its two imposing sisters. Its comparatively small size is excused on the ground that its founder had returned to that moderation in piety which ought to characterize a good king. The actions of his father were not pleasing to him. He reopened the temples and sent the people, reduced to the extreme of misery, back to their religious observances and their occupations. Finally, he administered justice more equitably than all other kings. On this head he is praised above those who have at any time reigned in Egypt. For not only did he administer good justice, but if any one complained of his decision he gratified him with some present in order to appease his wrath. There was one point, however, which excited the anxiety of many in a country where the mystic virtue of numbers was an article of faith. In order that the laws of celestial arithmetic should be observed in the construction of the pyramids, it was necessary that three of them should be of the same size. End of section 16. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.